Knock, knock. Who's there? Ah. Ah, who? Werewolves London. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We got to start with a funny joke. Welcome to Trashy Divorces. Welcome to Trashy Divorces. Werewolves of London. We're going to take you back to the... Swinging 60s. Swinging 60s in child England. Yeah. And talk about some just flaming trash. But before we do that, I got our Magic Mirror shout out for Patreon this week. Woo! Sterletha, Megan, Kim, and Rebecca. Thank Thank you, you, thank you, thank you. Y'all are awesome. Uh, What did we do on Patreon this week? Our gang is figuring it out who just joined us, but (laughs) let me just give you a little heads up. For our Trash Candy Tribe on Patreon, stickers and thank yous all got mailed all around the world this week, Uh so be on the lookout for those. A new monthly series launched, Trashy Tutors. I did a whole countdown of the downfall of my favorite queen, Anne Boleyn. It was Mm -hmm. amazing and harrowing. Harrowing. Trashy Tidbits this week featured all kinds of the juicy bits about old Possum and Tammy Wynette and how they intersect with James Taylor and Hillary Clinton. That was fun. Yeah. We also totally filled you in on where you can get your own gold-plated coin to have a direct channel to God to pray for the president. Um, this, we did both of these tipsy, so it was a lot of fun. There was some there was some snark. Let's say there was some snark on Patreon this week. Fun with done this week. We rounded out some of the final stories that we needed to get through before we go next week into A Season in Purgatory, one of his novels covering the murder of Martha Moxley. And oh, this Monday, tomorrow, tomorrow, uh-huh. y'all, uh-huh. for $10 Patreon people, my bonus divorce lands... And it's a good one. It is Tudor adjacent because you've met me. And this one is the original staircase murder. It's so good. <laughs> you've been talking about this since I met you. It's so good. This is uh, died before you could divorce, but still in the trashy divorces genre. Sure. Also, stickers went out this week to those folks who left us amazing iTunes reviews. Laura, Nicole, and Holly, be on the lookout. Your stickers are on the way. And if you have something nice to say and you say something nice, take a pic, send it to us and let us know, and we'll snail mail you some stickers too. Where would they send that? To trashydivorces at gmail.com. We got you. We got you. Plus, we just love getting emails from listeners. We really, we get the best emails every day. Yeah. So I think that's the business. Werewolves of London. We did the swinging sixties ish this yep. week. I think this. I think our stories actually do mark the the beginning of the cultural shift to modern England. I think so. Mm-hmm. I think so. We yeah. always discover something we never. I love the about. historical ones. I who really... did you? So who did you cover this week? So mine is a little bit divorce adjacent as well. I covered a very famous political scandal from the early 60s Mm -hmm. in London called the Profumo Affair, which had national security implications, but it also sort of brought to light the just the elite sex shenanigans that are a constant part of British life and probably life everywhere among the elites. Your story had everything. It was fun to research. I've heard of I mean, I know I was taught about it in school, but I mean... Wow. Your story had everything. (laughs) And you have some trash baggery. (laughs) I covered the I learned it by watching you, princess. The trashy divorce of Princess Margaret, Queen Elizabeth's sister, and her first and only husband, Tony Jones. 
Tony Anthony Jones. Armstrong Jones, Earl of Snowden. All the trash bags, y'all. My story had everything. Definitely take out your trashy divorces bingo cards <laughs> because this is the week you certainly should be yelling bingo. Bingo. You ready to start? Let's get into it. Let's have a trashy divorce. Or 50. <laughs> or legit. We Our trashy divorces count was high this week. Yeah. Yeah. Let's have 50 trashy divorces. Woo. Go. Hey, Stacy. Hello, Alicia. I am so excited about the story that you are going to tell today. Really? I really am. This is a scandal that I've wanted to know about for a long time. It's it's one I've been vaguely aware. Like, I've heard of it for sure pretty much my whole life, I think. And Well, and I don't know the bits. And right. of all the in- investigators in the world that are going to get down to the Dirty, dirty bits. Right. Talk to me. What have you got this week? Uh, I have a very famous British political scandal from the early 60s called the Profumo Affair. And I will warn you, there is a large cast of characters. So if 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 you get lost in this, if I'm not clear, like, just stop me. Okay. Feel free to, like, it is genuinely. Well, I think that's why I've never been able to really find out about it because I keep getting confused with who the hell's who. Sure. But you're going to break it down today. I'm going to try. Do um, it. Okay. I can't wait. So can't like wait. the the TLDR version, uh, if you just don't care about British history and want to skip right past. Yeah. I'm kidding. Don't do that. <laughs> is that in 1961, the British Secretary of State for War began an affair with a 19-year-old uh, it only lasted a few months, but she was at the same time having an affair with a Soviet spy. So, oh my. not a good look, right? Like, wow. basically, the defense secretary is having an affair with a woman who's having an affair with a Soviet spy. His- yeah, I can't imagine that's approved. Oh, no. It really caused some problems. <laughs> some really big problems. So, all right, let's get into the cast of characters okay. here. Again, large. Uh, John Profumo, who was the Secretary of State for War in the government of Prime Minister Harold Macmillan. Hey, it's another, another Prime Minister. Another Prime Minister who's not Winston Churchill, Churchill or Margaret Thatcher, Thatcher. right? We're going we're gonna to figure them all out at some point. By the end of Trashy Divorces, if we haven't, we're not doing it right at all. I can also say we, we're recording a few hours after Theresa May announced her resignation and someone on Twitter helpfully posted a list of all of the prime ministers that Queen Elizabeth has said farewell to. (laughs) And it is long. We are going to have a little bit of a study up list. (laughs) Okay. So John Profumo, uh, he was a soldier in the British army. His father was an Italian diplomat with the title of Baron in Italy so, like, this story is so weird. So Profumo is the fifth Baron Profumo of Italy, as well as a high-ranking British military officer, as well as a member of parliament, as well as an important minister. Whoa. Yeah. That's a lot of, a lot of stuff. A, that's a resume right there. You know I what? I think you mean CV. <laughs> I do. Okay. Also, uh, he has a wife. Her name is Valerie Hobson. She was an Irish-born movie star, and she like retired from acting when she married him in 54 but it was like this infusion of glamour into his life so his career seemed to really take off after okay. that wedding and since the story is sort of divorce adjacent we will note that it was her second marriage so boom trashy divorce okay. it it works 
it kind of works. There is a divorce. One of these characters does end up divorcing as a result of this, but no one we've talked about yet. Okay, there is Christine Keeler, who was the 19-year-old in question. She just, her life story is tragic as hell. She was sexually abused by her mother's boyfriend as a teenager. Oh, no. At one point, she was so malnourished that her school health inspector sent her to a home to deal with that. So she could just get so fed. So she could get fed. Wow. That is... So she could be that's fed. That's a tragic childhood. It's a tragic childhood. And at the age of 17, just to make everything worse, she gave birth to a premature son who survived just six days. Mm. Like, really... I mean, it's hard not to be like, okay, this kid is just set up to fail. Like, anyway, the International Man of Mystery at the center of this scandal is a gentleman named Stephen Ward. He is an osteopath, which is like a complementary medicine field. Sure. And and a socialite. He's not from London. He grew up in like Devon or something in a seaside town. But he ends up in London and sets the world on fire basically with his charm and good look i don't know it's his story so is very a secret strange. agent <laughs> actually he may have been by the time he leaves the story he also loves uh the nightclubs and so he meets christine and the christine mm-hmm, christine moves in with him oh okay but apparently they weren't lovers okay. sure lord astor i'm oh. not kidding like this cast of characters. This is a heavy name drop here. William Waldorf Astor II, who was then on his third wife, so more no, boom boom trash divorces. Just racking up the divorces. This totally works. He rented a cottage on his Cliveden estate to his friend Stephen Ward. I'm not sure if Astor like was, a, you do. was a patient of Ward's or if they just met, but... Okay. And there were many weekend parties held, which is sort of the source of the problem. Christine Keeler's best friend... Mandy Rice Davies also features in the story a little bit as the lover of Lord Astor. Oops. Oh, God. She is three years younger than her friend. So she's 16? But also a dancer at the club. I think she may have been like 14 when she started. Oh, my God. Started the, I don't know. It's really uh, like London in the like late 50s is real weird. Okay, final character. Soviet naval attaché. Captain or commander, I've seen it both ways, Yevgeny Ivanov. Okay. Russian okay. spy. Spoiler. Yeah, the dude's a spy. Great. Okay. Straight, straight out of the GRU, sent to London with his wife for a diplomatic posting. Oh, um, my. Yeah. Obviously a spy. <laughs> okay. I think I have the cast of characters down. I mean, you know, we'll, we'll touch. Bo- okay. So we'll set the stage here with Stephen Ward. Really bad student, it turns out, in school as a child. Just didn't care for it, didn't do well. I think his dad was a minister. It was a very normal upbringing, but just he was a slacker. Okay. So he graduates... Slacker's kind of slack. Yeah. He graduates from slacker school in 1929. (laughs) And, of course, you know, couldn't really find a profession because he was a slacker. Dude just wanders around, and he's got odd jobs in London. He picks up an odd job in Hamburg, Germany gets to Paris like he's just kind of wandering aimless okay okay in 1934 his mother is like Stephen you have to find a profession so what you need to do is go to America and study to become an osteopath because that's the next logical step of course that's what needs to happen now but he but he does okay 
I really don't know how that conversation came about. Wow. Handy tip, Mom. Okay, so he he goes, he he heads to Missouri, I, I think, and does this four-year program and becomes an osteopath. And oh. he is like certified to practice osteopathy. I think that's how you would pronounce that in the United States. Congratulations, Stephen. Woo, slacker no more. So he heads back home to England just in time for World War II to kick off. Oh, no. Oops. But he's got he's got a skill now. He's got a profession, and he's sure. he rushes to sign up with the like Royal Military Corps. But they're like, dude, you're certified to practice in America, but we're not in America, so no. Oh, so he ends up being conscripted, and his commanders are like, "Yay, we've got somebody with medical skills. This is great." So he's doing like medic duty, which of course pisses off the Royal Medical Corps. Who he wasn't good enough for. Wasn't good enough for. So they make his commanders, like, put him back to regular duty. Oh, my. But then ultimately pull him in to be a stretcher bearer. They just can't figure out how to use him. Well, if he's a stretcher bearer, he's going to be close enough to medic-type stuff where he can help. Exactly. So maybe we're going to call it stretcher bearer. I think that, yeah, yeah, that was probably the thing. So in 1944, he gets posted to India and he works on Mahatma Gandhi there because, of course, he does. Because this is basically the life of Stephen Ward. He is like the Forrest Gump of our story. Yeah, be the medic you want to see in the world. I mean, he it's weird. He just, like, pops up in all of these, like, situations near famous people. Do you think he's a time traveler? Do you think he's Doctor Who? I don't know. Whoosh. Whoosh. Uh, I, I actually don't, but... So he gets discharged from the army in 45. I love it that you actually contemplated that. Like, I don't know if he's doctor. I don't know that. But it could be possible. It's unlikely given how <laughs> the story is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So he's discharged in 45, heads back to London, gets a job in an osteopathic practice where he happens to treat, oh, I don't know, the American ambassador to the United Kingdom. Oh, my the son-in-law of a certain Winston Churchill, and apparently the son-in-law raves about him to his father-in-law. At this point, Stephen Ward is like, fuck yes, osteopathy. Yeah. And he goes out on his own and basically becomes the osteopath to the stars. Like he is a complementary medicine practitioner for high society in London. And it is an extremely successful practice. Like he meets everyone. Slacker no more. Slacker no more. And he must have been charming, charismatic, all that, because all these high society figures really embrace him. And soon he's being invited to all the right parties. This is the time period where he meets Lord Astor. And they really hit it off. And it's a very pivotal relationship for both of them, because Astor gave Ward entree into all of the London social circles. So his business was, the Astor thing really helped his business. Well, sure. (laughs) And Astor also rented him for apparently a very nominal fee, a cottage on his estate outside of London at Cliveden. And Ward brought Astor, who was kind of shy, along on his adventures to the nightclubs in London. So just a good friendship. And we will put a pen in that nightclub thing. All right. Pooh and Piglet. Here we go. (sighs) Yeah. (laughs) So Stephen Ward had a hobby of portrait sketching. Oh, okay. He was actually very talented at it, and he took classes for it, and obviously, like, by the mid-50s, he knew everyone who was everyone. And so the Illustrated London News commissioned him to sketch a bunch of famous people, like Prince Philip and Princess Margaret. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. 
Also, for whatever reason, Stephen Ward really wanted to like go to the Soviet Union and sketch Soviet leaders. That's not suspicious at all. Don't know why that was a thing for him, but he's chatting with one of his patients one day, who's like the editor of the Daily Telegraph, telling him how cool it would be to go to Russia and do this. And like, I don't know, was Stalin in charge at the time? Like, I don't know. I don't know what the appeal was. But the Daily Telegraph guy is like, hey, I know some Russian diplomats. Like, let's set up a meet and greet. So they have lunch. Oh, my. And Ward meets Yevgeny Ivanov. <laughs> the Soviet naval attache. Straight out of the GRU. So Ivanov and his wife Maya were posted in London in the spring of 1960. They were very well liked. And shockingly... Ivanov became fast friends with Stephen Ward because here you've got a Russian spy hanging out with this incredibly successful social climber who spends his weekends at a riverside cottage he rents from Lord Astor, who had been a member of parliament before taking his hereditary seat in the House of Lords and remained very active in conservative politics with a conservative government. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. (laughs) Could not be better. (laughs) I feel like Peter Sellers or Steve Martin or somebody should be in this movie because it's the setup for every spy mm-hmm. farce mm-hmm. trope mm-hmm. to, okay, there, yeah, it's fine. It's on fire, but it's fine. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, this cottage at Cliveden was apparently quite the party scene. And Astor and his crowd would sometimes join Stephen Ward's group down at the cottage. Or Ward and his friends would head up to the main house to party with Astor's high society crew. So Ward's home in the city was at central London, Wimpole Mews. Okay. I actually looked up what Mews means in a housing context. And it's a lot of cats. It's a lot of, it's just, it's a house for cats. No, it's a, it's an old style structure that basically had a stable on the ground floor for your horses. Okay. And then you and your family lived above your stable. Oh. And so it's sort of brownstones, you know, these days it's a garage on the ground level and you live above the garage. I had never known that. Look and I just thought. some historical architecture I knowledge. I just thought I would share that. Thank you. Ward's home in uh, central London was at Wimpole Mews and Ivanov was a frequent guest there and an occasional guest at the Cliveden Cottage weekends. I mean, apparently they don't listen to trashy divorces. Where the cream of the conservative government was partying up the hill at Astor's mansion or whatever. When will people listen to our warnings about British house country parties? It's it's a fair question. All right, one last thing before we spend a weekend at Cliveden with these (laughs) people. So Stephen Ward liked the nightlife. He liked to boogie. He frequented a place called Murray's Cabaret Club in Soho, and in 1959, he met the 17-year-old Christine Keeler, a topless showgirl there. Oh. Because the world is absolutely insane, she immediately agrees to move in with him. Sure. You know, this is the same year, by the way, that Elvis is courting 14-year-old Priscilla Presley in Germany. Like, it's a world world gone gone mad. mad. (laughs) Jinx. (laughs) So she ends up living with him off and on. For several years, it seems like what'll happen is she'll find a sugar daddy, move in with sugar daddy until they break up, and then she will return to... But, like, she and Ward are but good friends. friends. She's mm-hmm. got a soft place to land, yes. and that's probably good for yes. a person. So it was that on the weekend of July 8, 1961, Stephen Ward, Christine Keeler, Yevgeny Ivanov, <laughs> and maybe some other guests, I'm not sure are at the cottage 
on Cliveden, partying. I don't know. I don't know what they're doing. Drinking, fishing. I don't know. It's a riverfront cottage. It sounds bucolic. I mean, British country house parties, they're drinking, shooting, fucking and drinking some more. Okay. Yeah. All right. So they're at the cottage in the main house. Lord Astor is having a party of his own large gathering that includes John Profumo, the Secretary of State for War, and his wife, Valerie Hobson. Oh, God. Saturday night, both groups converge at the swimming pool. Oh, well, because they swim sometimes, too. Swimming. And uh, Profumo was very taken with Christine Keeler, with whom he commenced an affair. Great. And how old is Profumo? He's like 35 years older than she is. Okay, so he, a little bit older. He was born in 1915, and she was born in 1942. Fantastic. So, okay, I just wanted to make sure I had the right visual. Completely age appropriate. Perfect. All right. Perfect. So the affair lasts either weeks or a few months. It's not quite clear. It was not a long affair, let's put it that way. Okay. They would typically meet at Ward's house when he was out, though occasionally, he, like when his wife was out, he would bring her to... Uh, his own house. That's just super trashy. Yeah. In light of what comes later, it is worth noting that Profumo did not pay her for sex. Oh, okay. Well, that's good to know. Is actually an important detail that is worth noting. I like that. Because this sucks. Okay, on August 9th, a month after the party at Cliveden, a month into the affair, Profumo, who again is basically the defense secretary for England, is pulled aside by cabinet secretary Norman Brooke, and he is warned to steer clear of Stephen Ward and his friends. Oh. Because MI5 has noted his friendship with Ivanov, who they know to be a spy. There was like a double agent. There was a, they'd flip somebody else who was like, yeah, that guy Ivanov, he's totally. So Buddy's trying to tip him off. Like they're watching you, like, don't. Oh, wow. And like MI5 was trying to get Ward to get Ivanov to defect. And I guess Ward wasn't doing it or just wasn't being successful out of this it. This is super, agri- super agent spy shit. It is super agent spy shit. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. No, in 62, it's weird. Like Ward and I- like Ivanov's back in Russia and MI5 grabs Ward and is like, can you call your buddy and like back channel some shit? Because the Cuban Missile Crisis was happening. Like... There is some secret agent shit in here that's really, Whoa. really weird. Profumo gets this warning to stay away from Stephen Ward. And I don't know I don't know if this other cabinet secretary like knew about the affair or not, but this may have ended it or it may not. Like Christine Keeler spoke about this many times throughout her life, but her story was always a little different. Okay. So by December 1961, the affair is over. Like, that seems to be agreed upon by all parties. Okay. It may have been over much earlier. Not really sure. There was the little problem, though, uh, that Profumo probably was not aware of, that while he was having this affair with her, she was having an affair with the Russian spy, which puts everything in very bad, <laughs> very, very bad uh, light. Okay. It does seem that Ivanov was well aware of Christine Keeler and Profumo sleeping together, though. Oh, no. And, like, he and Ward at some point tried to pressure Christine, like, quiz Profumo about when America was going to put nukes in West Germany. Oh, my and God. And other important intel, no, you know. Oh, nobody knows. 
She says she didn't do it, and in the inquiry that followed, Profumo maintained that no such conversations took place. But, like, here you've got Ward really, like, selling out his country to a foreign intelligence service. It's very, it's, it's very strange. Super shady. So the other problem for John Profumo is that apparently the affair was not that secret. <laughs> uh, and so rumors were building throughout 1962 there were like coded references and gossip columns about you know some elite having an affair that mi5 had to stop because like this is you know britain has these very strong libel laws yes and so it's all coded but it really doesn't appear that it was uh, that much of a secret they just couldn't say it out loud like it was just tantalizing hints all over the place until december 1962 when something genuinely weird happened so christine keeler is at stephen ward's wimple muse house with her best friend mandy rice davies okay stephen ward is out and keeler's most recent ex-boyfriend shows up and wants to talk to her and they don't let him in so this dude johnny edgecombe pulls a fucking gun out of his pocket (sighs) And fires five rounds into Stephen Ward's front door. No, what? Yeah. Nobody got hurt, but it was a bizarre story. And obviously, cops arrive, and so do reporters. Oh, my God. So Keeler is like... And here we go with the chaos theory. I can sell my story. I was totally oh, no, doing it no, with, no. like, the minister for war and a Russian spy last year. I need to make a buck off this. So she's going to all these newspapers and she finally accepts a thousand pound offer from the Sunday pictorial, which will become the Sunday mirror in the future. But again, she's been talking to reporters all over the place. Like all of the newspapers now know that this happened. And I'm certain because she's a teenager, she's using very nuanced language (sighs) And being very appropriate in what she is sharing. Oh, she's sharing. I'm sure it's palace approved. Everything. Oh, no. To the, to the point that a different newspaper, one that did not pay her for the story, alerts Lord Astor because she has revealed that her friend Mandy Rice Davies is his lover. Oh, my God. And so Astor and Ward get in touch with Profumo to be <laughs> like, dude, the story's out there and you're fucked. We're fucked. You're fucked. Everybody's fucked. Oh, my God. So Profumo sends his lawyers to talk to Keeler and like, please stop. You're you're killing me here. Please stop. And she demands a huge, like extortionate amount of money to shut up and they don't give it to her. So then all they can do is go to the newspaper and say, look, if you publish this, we're going to sue your ass. We're going to shut you down. It's going to be terrible. So the newspaper freaks out and. Shuts Just it down? Shuts down the story. So this thousand pound payout, she only gets 200 of because that was the, the advance and then 800 when it published. So she got kind of screwed there. But she's not done. What do you think that Christine Keeler does next? I. What would happen in our screenplay? She goes to the police to report the sex, this I guess. This is a farce. This it's is a, a farce. It's, it's got a lot of farce elements. She goes to the police and tells... And what does she say? I don't know. I, I, I'm i I'm very curious about that myself. I would like to I report a sex, a sex worker, but I didn't get paid for this sex, but I want you to do something about it. I would like to report a sex. Oh, my God. So 
Yeah, she goes to the police, tells her story. The cops are like, what the fuck even is this? And they don't send it up to MI5, where I guess MI5 would very much have loved to hear this story. But, you know, at this point, like, the whole government is aware of the rumors. Harold Macmillan, the prime minister, like, takes Profumo aside and says, dude, what is this? Is this real? And Profumo's like, of course it's not real. You know, like, just lying. Just lying. So everybody in the media knows about it because Christine Keeler has been there and told them. Everybody in the government knows, but his party is covering for him. And the opposition is waiting for the media to break the story. Like, it is untenable. It is everywhere and nowhere. It's a lot like when BuzzFeed finally published the Steele dossier. Sure. Even though they couldn't corroborate. Everybody knows about it. Nobody's talking about it. There had been references Mm -hmm. to it. Like, everyone knew it was out there. Most of the Washington press corps had seen it at that point. Like, this this is where we are here. But the libel laws, being what they are... And I guess the Macmillan government had had actually prosecuted a journalist who got like a 14-year prison sentence not long before this. So everybody's pretty on edge about what they can get away with in the press. On March 14th, Johnny Edgecombe goes on trial for shooting Stephen Ward's door for like attempted murder, basically. I almost forgotten about him. (laughs) Sorry. He's a bit player. Keeler is expected to testify, but does not show up. No one knows where she is. Interesting. Interesting. It turns out that she had gone to Spain without telling the court. <laughs> Take a holiday in Spain. But this, the the missing witness, this gives the press license to finally put Christine Keeler and John Profumo in a sentence together. As in, oh, where whoa. is Christine Keeler and did John Profumo have something to do with her disappearance? Oh, God, it's gone, girl. Right? And they can't tell the public why they think John Profumo might have had something to do with her disappearance. Like, it's what a mess. super weird. But now, now it's out there. Now the two of them are linked. So on March 21st, a member of parliament of, from the Labor Party, the opposition party, George Whig, takes advantage of his parliamentary privilege. He can't be prosecuted for what he says, like, in debate on okay. the, in the House of Commons. And he asks the Home Secretary to categorically deny the truth of rumors connecting, quote, a minister to Christine Keeler, Mandy Rice Davies, and Johnny Edgecombe's shooting incident. Oh, my God. And the Home Secretary can't do it. And apparently this debate goes on all day. Profumo was not named, and he was not in the House that day. But everyone knew who Wig was talking. Like, everybody knew. This is scandal. This is scandal, dude. Which is, there was a movie made about it called oh. Scandal. Yeah. <laughs> scandal. Scandal. So afterward, the conservative party leaders get together and they're like, John, you need to you need to put this to bed, like for sure. You need to like just put a statement out. Kill tell it. him you're in. A, yeah, just make it stop. So he works with his lawyers. And on March 22, he releases he well, I guess he gives a speech in Parliament, but he acknowledged that he knew Keeler through Stephen Ward, that he had met a Mr. Ivanov twice in 1961, he said his relationship with Christine Keeler was totally proper. That there, I didn't there even were... pay her for sex. Right. <laughs> uh, and that he would sue for libel anyone who said differently. God damn it. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
So within days, like Stephen Ward is on television backing John Profumo. Like the these rumors of an affair are baseless. This is like this man would powerful never. Powerful people swooping in to protect he's, their. He's own. a man of honor, and you know all of that. But Stephen Ward was having his own problems with the police at this point, who had begun investigating him for dot 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 something. It's not clear. Like I think maybe. MI5 was kind of pushing on this. I don't know. But they were just sniffing around. They interviewed like 150 of his friends. They were really serious about trying to find something Something. that he had done wrong. So his, he was eventually prosecuted and this, um, for basically for pimping for, Oh my God. For making money from illegal con. Like, I don't know. Okay. Basically for pimping Christine Keeler and Mandy huh. Rice Davies, which he didn't. It doesn't appear that that was the case. And his prosecution is is widely seen as just political vengeance for embarrassing the McMillan government. Oh, my gosh. Like, it seems shady as fuck. So anyway, so he goes to several government ministers and is like, dude, like, the cops are making my life unbearable. Why don't you make this stop? And the ministers won't do it. So... He, by mid-May, he's flipped and he's like, oh my God, John Profumo is a fucking liar and he totally had an affair with Christine Keeler and like, blah, blah, blah. Sings like a bird. Yeah. So meanwhile, Christine Keeler has popped back up. She's interviewed by the police as part of the investigation into Stephen Ward and she goes right ahead and is like, yep, I was doing it with John Profumo and I was doing it with this Russian spy and it was... They tried to get me to talk. 61 was amazing. What a good year. No, I... And there was that time in sixth grade. Yeah. So she was able to describe the interior of John Profumo's home, which according to his statement would not have been possible. So... But she'd been there a few times. So at the start of June... The Profumos are in Venice on holiday, and they get a message telling them, like, okay, come back to London now. Oh, God. So he knows, I mean, he knows what's coming. So he comes clean to his wife, and they they stay together. They're together for the rest of their lives. When they get back to London, Profumo confesses to party leaders that, in fact, he had lied to the House of Commons in person, which is just an unforgivable event. Offense. Um, yeah, yeah sure. I mean, you can't. Up until this point, if something was said in the House of Commons, it was accepted as, like, your your word is your bond. It was accepted as an honorable, good-faith statement. Nope. So on Tuesday, June 4th, he resigned from the government, from Parliament, and his formal letter of resignation to Macmillan was published on June 5th. The papers, which had been worried about libel, which is when you say something that's not true. Free for all. Free for all! Yeah. Like... And not just about Profumo, but now, like, all kinds of stories about the upper crust are just churning. So they, they're they also taking shots at Stephen Ward, who is being painted as a Soviet spy and a sexual predator, uh, only one of which appears to be true. He probably wasn't a sexual predator. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh- <laughs> He was arrested on June 8th and ultimately was, again, charged with pimping Christine Keeler and Mandy Rice Davies. Oh, my God. Again, charges that don't seem to have been true. The government, Harold McMillan's government, is in chaos. Everybody's calling for him to resign. You know, you 
you had this massive security leak and you didn't do anything about it, even though the rumors were out there for like a year. What the hell, dude? So it was a, it was a very bad time for the British government. The media, I love this, have all these sensational stories about the immorality of the ruling class. And Mandy Rice Davies, who becomes a little starlet in her own right from this scandal, she is having so much fun with it. She tells of a naked masked man who worked as a waiter at sex parties. Lone Ranger? She attended. (laughs) Um, Naked Lone Ranger? There's like a suggestion that it's someone someone very important, a cabinet member, maybe a royal. Later, like a few weeks later... The- I'm sorry, hold on. I'm, just, I'm mm. trying to... Sure, okay. sure, sure. So there's a naked, masked man mm-hmm. just with a drink tray? I'm assuming. Okay, fantastic. Hopefully in his hand, but we can't know. <laughs> I mean, it may not even be true, right? But she's clearly relishing the attention that is heading her way. Wow. Okay. She's really the only person who comes out of the scandal in a peppy way. (laughs) (laughs) So, all right. So there's this story out there about this masked man who could be a member of the royal family. The Daily Mirror runs an article a few weeks later that is titled Prince Philip and the Profumo Scandal. Oh my God. The article dismisses a, quote, foul rumor about the prince without ever saying what the rumor was. So... Connect those dots. Like, anyway. Yep. So, oh my uh, God. Macmillan, the prime minister, responds in like the classical political move. He appointed an official, Lord Denning, to investigate and report on the scandal. So, so no scandals ever found. Nash. Yeah. Okay. Uh, not quite a blue ribbon panel or a bipartisan commission, but it's no know, Warren commission. You, you get the idea. It's no Mueller report. <laughs> So Stephen Ward, our osteopathic international man of mystery, his trial begins on the 28th of July. And it sounds like the judge was pretty, pretty ready to convict him, made sure some evidence didn't get to the jury. Like just, yeah. So Ward understood what was happening the night before he was ultimately convicted. He overdosed on sleeping pills. Oh my God. And he died three days later. (gasps) He was convicted in absentia. This gives Lord Denning, the investigator, the perfect scapegoat because Ward has Uh, both been convicted by a court and is not around to defend himself. Sure. So everything that can be blamed on him. Yeah, you can imagine that when this report comes out in September, uh, it was thorough. It was well crap. No, it was none of those things. It was scathing to Stephen Ward. Yeah, Denning basically found that there had been no security leak, that John Profumo was loyal to the, you know, to to the end, to the nines, to the whatever, and that Stephen Ward was a scumbag. Oh, and also, everything is fine with the elites, you commoners. Leave us alone. Wow. Yeah, that report is not, it has not aged well. Historians don't seem to think very highly of it. Macmillan resigned in October. And in 1964, the following year, the Labor Party beat them at the polls, took over government. Historians view the Profumo affair as a turning point in Tory party politics that kind of washed away the old aristocratic framework that it had operated under and allowed a new meritocracy to develop. It also seems to have really degraded traditional notions of authority in British society and 
I mean, I think it really kind of, it was a sex scandal to kick off the 60s. I think it really helped usher in like the 60s as a cultural yeah. thing. And I think your story also sort of... Oh, yeah, I definitely see a see-through. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so how the lives went. Okay, so Profumo and his wife Valerie stayed together. They went to work as volunteers at Toynbee Hall, which is an East End anti-poverty charity. And they spent the rest of their lives there. Well, that's nice. Like, okay. They lived off his inherited wealth because Italian aristocracy. <laughs> Such a weird story. So, yeah, he became the chief fundraiser for the charity, brought in a ton of, like, he, I mean, he still had his connections. Like, he sure. obviously couldn't be in government, but made a ton of money for the charity. And this really rehabilitated his reputation over time. So, in 1975, Queen Elizabeth appointed him commander of the Order of the British Empire. At oh, wow. a Buckingham Palace ceremony, which is obviously the all is forgiven moment. Sure. In 1995, he sat next to the Queen at Margaret Thatcher's 70th birthday party. Whoa. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Valerie passed away in 98 at the age of 81, and Profumo died after a stroke in 2006 at the age of 91. Holy smokes. Fascinatingly, his son, David Profumo, wrote a book about the family, and it notes that his parents never told him about the scandal that bears his name, too. Really, He learned about it in school. That was the first time he ever heard of the Profumo affair was, like, in history class or something. Unreal. Yeah. Well, so, that's some good parenting. It's strange parenting. Oh, but keeping your kid out of the way of your dirty, dirty bits. Yeah. Okay. Christine Keeler, who had such a bad start in life, seems also to have had a pretty unhappy rest of her life. She served four and a half months in prison for perjury in 1964 after giving false testimony at a trial. She was married twice, divorced twice, had two children. She published a few books about her life, but she's just an unreliable narrator. Like, Sure. It was kind of always a different story. The National Portrait Gallery, which we did not get to when we were in London, acquired a portrait that Stephen Ward made of her. In 1984. Yeah. Ah. So that, I thought that was a kind of cool detail because she, you know, she is a historical figure. She died in 2017 at Mm. the age of 75. Wow. Lord Astor's third wife stood by her man, but not for too long. He died of a heart attack in 1966 at the age of 58. Wow. The only one of these spouses who really stood up for herself was Yevgeny Ivanov's wife, Maya. So they were they were recalled to Moscow in '62, like before the the scandal broke. Yeah, do you think? Yeah, well, get him out of there. Well, but I mean, it's not like he was reporting to his superiors that that he had an affair. Like you know, he was just having fun in London. True. <laughs> anyway, so they're back in Moscow. The Profumo affair breaks as news. And when when Maya hears about this story, she is just like, nopeity, nope, no. And she's gone. So I guess his work as a spy wasn't super groundbreaking. And his bosses didn't, he, you know, he's he was just a Navy guy after that. So he took up drinking as his hobby. <laughs> uh, he received the Order of Lenin at one point, And that is apparently a civilian, not military honor. So uh-huh. I'm not really sure. Maybe the spying was more significant than... But in any case, in 92, he published a memoir called The Naked Spy with a foreword by Christine Keeler. <laughs> what a mess. And I have ordered a copy. 
Oh, fantastic. Uh, he died in 1994. So all of that is pretty sad. The, uh, the one person who just comes out of this amazingly is the youngest person involved, Mandy Rice Davies, sure. who, I don't know, just like rides the wave of like 60s awesomeness. So she's testifying at Ward's trial in July, you know, of 63 or whatever. The defense lawyer, you know, says to her, but Lord Astor has denied having an affair with you. And she very famously replied, well, he would, wouldn't he? (laughs) Which has become... Which has become shorthand. There is an internet slang version of this that is MRDA, which means Mandy Rice Davies applies. Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, he would, wouldn't he? Love that. She went on to release a record in 1964 called Introducing Mandy and compared herself favorably, I think, to Lady Hamilton, who had been Admiral Nelson's mistress. In 66, she (laughs) married an Israeli businessman, moved to Israel, converted to Judaism, had a daughter, and opened nightclubs and restaurants like Mandy's and (laughs) Mandy's Candies. In 1980, she wrote an autobiography. It was called Mandy. Oh, my God. Yeah, she appeared in a Tom Stoppard play called Dirty Linen. She wrote a novel. Dirty Mandy. (laughs) Right. She wrote a novel called The Scarlet Thread that has been compared to Gone with the Wind. Oh. She just had this like crazy, she was on AbFab. A journalist said that she, quote, immediately spotted that this Rice Davies was a woman to go up the Amazon with. (laughs) Like. Just had this crazy, she was in films, and Bridget Fonda played her in the 1989 film Scandal about the Profumo Fantastic. affair. Yeah. She just went on to have this, like, crazy good life. Died in 2014 at the age of 70, having once described her life as one slow descent into respectability. <laughs> which I think is how we all want to go out. Pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> so that is that is more or less the Profumo affair. Wowzers. Did that answer all of your long-held questions about... It answered so many of my questions. Honestly, the the thing I thought of most in this was Austin Powers, (laughs) the spy who shagged me. You're not kidding. (laughs) Like, this is every... Wow. Thank you. Hey, you're welcome. That was a... a, I don't know. I counted like seven or eight trashy divorces in the entirety of that story. At the time of her death, Mandy Rice Davies was... She had also been divorced twice. She was on her third husband. Oh, great. So, yeah, we may have broken double digits in the divorce yes. count for that. Yes. Wow. Yes. Thanks, Stacey. That hey, was awesome. You're welcome. You ready to take a break? Yeah, let's take a break. Whew. That was quite the story. We're um, going to come back to the... We're we got still more. coming back to the swing of 60s. Swing of 60s in old, oldie London. Groovy, baby. There you go. Let's take a break. <laughs> Hey, Trash Pandas, when you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island, from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. 
This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. So, Alicia, I have uh, I have neat news for you. Tell me. It appears that Stephen Ward, osteopath of the Profumo Affair, sure, uh, actually has known one of your subjects since really? the early 1950s. Who's that? Anthony, what is his name? Anthony Armstrong Jones. Lord Snowden. Lord Snowden. John Snow. John Snow. That's exactly anyway. Right. I don't want to jump on your story, but I did want to note that these, this circle of highly sexual is, of elites yeah. who are just partying with teenage girls constantly, it it's a thing. Oh wait, sex magic. Are you ready? I can't wait. Okay, I can't wait. So last week dedications were so much fun. I'm going to do it again this week. You know that I adore the Counting Crows. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Two of our favorite listeners, mm-hmm. Christina and Scout, also mm-hmm. adore the Counting Crows. And I am calling this story High Life. Aww. Y'all are my people. This one's for you. Thanks, Adam Duritz, <laughs> Emmy, all the boys in the band. This week, I got a, I got a doozy of a story. <laughs> spoiled girl, rejected boy, spoiled boy, rejected girl, <laughs> such a life, they're a-coming. It goes all kinds of ways in my story today for Trashy Divorces. I know we've covered all kinds of royal divorces for this podcast, Charles and Di, Andrew and Sarah. And we think the royals just now like, yeah, they divorce all over the place. But as it turns out today, I've got the story of the first royal divorce in the immediate line of secession since the days of everyone's favorite tyrant king, Henry VIII. Wow. 400, right around 450 years. Wow. First divorce. Really? Princess Margaret. Yes, ma'am. All right. Well. It is a scandal. It is a problem. But it is not the first nor the last Starfair princess will have in her life. And seriously, all her nephews can say is I learned it by watching you. I, oh, this story. Okay, are you ready for mm-hmm. the trashy divorce of Princess Margaret? Indeed. And Antony Armstrong Jones, the Earl of Snowden. Okay. I think we have to start with the princess. She'd be really yeah. pissed if we did not. Cool. So cool. Margaret Rose, our fair princess, is born August 21st, 1930. She is the second child of Bertie and Elizabeth, otherwise known as the Duke and Duchess of York. Our Duke and Duchess had been married seven years. Margaret Rose is welcomed into the world by them and her sister, Elizabeth, as well as all of England. The registration of her birth is delayed a few days in the parish register to avoid her being number 13 on the list. (laughs) Okay. It is fair to say, although her birth was celebrated, Margaret enters into the world as a disappointment for some. So the heir to the throne, her uncle David, who is going to abdicate the throne before the decade ends and isn't marrying anytime soon, is also rumored not to be able to sire children because he had measles as a boy. So England and the palace is on the lookout for a boy child to get on the throne. Yeah, hand that crown to. They've got Elizabeth. Margaret's born. It's not going to be her. She's not a boy. 
England doesn't change this rule well into, I guess, late last century, beginning of this century. So Margaret is a second child of a second child. The current king and her dad, like Maggie is the favorite in their eyes. She always will be. She is pretty, beautiful, smart, sassy, which is going to, as a child and as an adult, translate into very spoiled. Mm, Yeah. Okay. And honestly, to be a royal and be spoiled, like, because they, again, they have more money than God. It's not a pretty combination. Yeah, it's, yeah. Okay. So she's the favorite on her dad's side. I think she's also the favorite on her mom's side. Elizabeth is a Leo as well. So I'm not sure if you've ever met a Leo parent, but uh, one other interesting bit that I picked up along the way, there is a rumor that both Margaret and Elizabeth were conceived not in the normal way. Like maybe they were baster babies in the beginning stages of like... IVF, Birdie maybe needed a little extra help. This back in the 30s? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. Wow. So by all accounts, the Yorks are a tremendously close and happy family of four. The girls are homeschooled. They have lots of corgis. Life (laughs) is pretty good. They play games and it's fun and everything is amazing. And when Margaret is five, her grandfather, the king, dies. Yikes. And life takes its first shift. But I'm going to go ahead and switch cars on the trashy divorces train for a second. Okay. To talk about a five-year-old, Anthony Armstrong Jones. He's a March 7th baby of Pisces, also born in 1930, just like his future wife. His five-year-old year is a big fat bummer for him because his parents are getting divorced. His mother is legitimately beautiful. She is gorgeous. And she makes it her life's work to continue to marry up in the peerage. Oh. He has an older sister, but Tony and his older sister are both pretty much hated by mom because mom hates their dad. Hmm. And she marries up that same year to an Irish chap with a lot of title and a lot of land, the sixth Earl of Ross. And she is now a countess, and she thinks that's pretty cool. And she has two more kids and proceeds to call Tony for the rest of his life her ugly child. Oh, God. Mm -hmm. The new kid, the new boy child, rides in first class. The rest of the family with the new girl child rides in second. Tony and his sister ride in third on every trip they take. Yes. Okay, that's... That's shocking. That's upsetting. That so, is a really shitty way to bad. treat your children. Mom is kind of a jerk, and Tony is going to battle this need that he has for her acceptance and approval for much of the journey in this story. By the way, Mom's whispered name in the peerage, her whispered nickname in the peerage set is Tugboat Annie. Why is that? She's always latching on. Oh, oh, to the next one. Yep. Okay. That's funny. Another bit here, Tony does contract polio at a young age, and while hospitalized, his older sister is the only one who visits him. Um, Can we, can I jump in here? So the king-to-be could not have children because of measles. Mm -hmm. This kid has polio, which my dad had minor polio when he was a kid, too. Vaccinate, y'all. You know what? Vaccinations are really fucking good. (laughs) Pre-vaccination here. I know, I know. I'm just like, what a happy world that we don't encounter this shit today. 
you know it's good except except we do you know what moving on back to the story so tony's sister is the only one who visits him in the hospital like it his family is just his mom is just shit how old uh are they at this point is he he's young like nine or ten like he's yeah young he because of this this polio, is heartbreaking. Gains this determination to be stronger and faster and better and walk again. And no one else is going to do it for me. So I'm going to do it on my own and builds this sort of shell of self-resiliency. And he's kind of a slight kid. He's not very big, but he's loaded with fucking personality. <laughs> and he starts working now to sort of gain this legendary stamina and strength that he has. He continues to grow up and he may be small with the big personality and it only gets bigger when he falls into this amazing mentorship relationship with his uncle. It's a guy named Oliver Messel. Uncle Ollie is way gay, but it's undercover London. Like yeah, you, you're not, yeah. you're out in your crew. Sure. But you know, he's legendary. He's a super famous designer, theater set staging and he is not only hanging in the scene, he is part of the creator of the scene. Oliver Messel is sort of lit in this time period. And there's Tony. Well, and there's finally an adult who is willing to, like, be interested in his life. And, you know, that's exactly. Yeah. It. The, God. So Tony is in the thick, in the center of the scene. This is late 40s early 50s in London. It's arty, bohemian, gay, bisexual, and or swinging, and Tony has found his people. <laughs> it is the high life, and Tony also leads England to win a big fat boat race in 1950. So okay. dude is kind of walking on sunshine. Okay. He is living... So now he's a golden child, basically. Not with his mom. Well, yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah, but yeah like... He's making his way into the world, and he is living... The decade of the 60s, a decade before. Oh, he interesting. He is the front runner of all the scandal that's happening in your story. He's the one that sows those seeds right. in the 50s. He has lots of girlfriends, lots and lots of girlfriends, English, Chinese, lots of boyfriends. It is said about him, if it moves, he will have it. Wow. <laughs> And friends with Stephen Ward, who uh, it doesn't seem like he had quite. They were the, big fans. Quite the each... libido that uh, yeah. your guy does, but they yeah. were Tony's moving in the same circles. Yeah, super reckless, very promiscuous, and Tony's going to roll along in this swinging lifestyle for a while. And did I mention that he's using all of these high society contacts to start and be really successful in a photography career? He's on fire. He's on the cutting edge of all that's coming. And we're going to meet back with him in 1958 when he is 28. But he's making it. Tony's mom still hates him. But he is living a life where her approval doesn't mean anything. Doesn't make a difference. See you later, alligator. We'll catch you back, Tony. So when we left, tiny five-year-old Margaret, favorite daughter, spoiled AF. Her grandfather has died. And Uncle David assumes the throne, which should all be well and good. Her dad is now second in line, okay? But no matter, it's all going to be fine, which it is, for less than a year. Because by the time Margaret has turned six in 1936, she's celebrating Christmas that year at the big house. Because Uncle David 
has abdicated to go marry Wallace. Yep. Dad is now the king. Mom is now the queen. Her sister is the queen in waiting and wowza. Shit. Right. Life changes. Her childhood rolls along. War in England. Mom and dad are killing it as queen and king. Margaret's life is at the palace and with protocol. And let me reassure you, her sister is the good one. Mags is a little naughty. She's a little mischievous. And I think in this role, because now she's getting the public eye of the press and it's always like, ooh, she's the scandal. Like, this is inbred from a tiny girl that she's the bad one. Elizabeth is a good one and she's the bad one. And sort of starts to cast herself in this anti-sister, wicked sister thing. Mm Mm-hmm. The war ends. It's a lot of official duty, but as a budding teenager, Margaret kind of gets the hots for her dad's equerry. It's like a aide to camp. Okay. E Q U I R Y equerry, like his right hand man. Okay. This is Bertie's right hand man. Her private secretary. Private secretary. Okay. Aide to camp takes care of all the stuff. His name is Peter Townsend, and he is a hero from World War II, fighter pilot. Dashing, married, two kids, and 15 years Margaret's senior. Well, he ends up escorting Margaret another year or two. She's a little older on an international trip. She's like 16. And she's in love. And again, it is dangerous to fall for your Tiger Beat poster on the wall. Yeah. I'm just saying. So don't marry the poster on the wall. <laughs> In 1947, also when Margaret is 15, let's just remember her perfect goody-goody two-shoe sister gets married. Okay? So Elizabeth has been married. Margaret's in love with Peter Townsend. And Peter ends up falling in love with her. And Margaret's never been happier. And everything is great and super secret. And we're keeping it on the DL. And then another big turnaround is going to happen. Margaret's father... King George, Bertie, passes away in 1952. Right. So Margaret is 22 wow. and by all accounts devastated. She loved her dad. And she and her mom are now packing up the big house to move to Elizabeth's house. And Elizabeth is packing up her house to Dude. move it on into the yeah. big house. Yeah. It's a mess. Wow. So when Elizabeth is coronated, June the 2nd, 1953, Princess Margaret obviously there peter townsend obviously there and she is snapped in a picture removing picking a piece of lint off of his jacket oh oh and it is so intimate right and so telling like everyone in the world that can see the... street in the world mm-hmm. on fire about the gossip is she having an affair will he divorce will they marry hot gossip and mags is causing the scandal again peter does get divorced And Margaret spends the better part of the next two years arguing with Elizabeth for her to marry Peter. By the Royal Marriages Act of 1772, Elizabeth has to grant permission. These people. So Elizabeth is like, yeah, let's wait a little while and a year goes by and we'll wait a little while and another year goes by. And Margaret's mother, now the queen mum, refuses to discuss it. And poor Margaret is just growing angrier and more frustrated, waiting for her shot at the love that everyone else right. around her has to. Right. Finally, by like 1955, Elizabeth is like, all right, I got a deal for you, little sister. You can marry him with my full blessing. But when you do, 
you're going to lose your royal title. You'll be married and live as a commoner. You're going to lose all access to royal names, access funding. Congrats. I wish you and Peter the best. She can't marry a divorced man in the Church of England. It's all religious. Like, okay. And Elizabeth's okay. like, I'm not going to stand in the way of your love. You want to marry him? Marry him. But you cannot marry him in the church, which means you are going to have to lose your title in order to do it. And Max is like, nobody. <laughs> that is not going to happen. I she, love you a lot, but. Not that much. <clears throat> Margaret does not take the deal. She sends out a statement claiming for religious reasons that marriage is indissoluble and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, it's all about her royal gig. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So she's still grieving her father. She's grieving Peter. And things are fairly crap for her for the next few years. She becomes untethered. She starts to drink a lot. There's no need for her to earn her keep. And the palace is not exactly putting her on royal duties, so she's staying up late, sleeping till noon, waking up, drinking and smoking, and just lives in this cycle of kind of a rich young woman mm-hmm. idling her time yeah. away. Yeah. Okay. Now, the trains, our trashy divorces trains. Ah, uh, yes. You're going to pull into the station at the same time for the meeting of our lovers. We have desperate, unhappy, drunk, spoiled Margaret. Tony, living high on sex, magic, love, fire, changing the world, and wanting mom's approval. (laughs) Hey, babe, what do you need to be forgiven? Everything that they have ever done wrong is the reason that they are driven straight to each other. Hmm. At a faded dinner party in 1958, Margaret and Tony meet. There is a distinct lack of fireworks from both sides. Oh, interesting. He thinks she's charming. She thinks he's totally gay. Oh, well... But alas, she's half right. (laughs) One of Margaret's admirers needs a photo of her. And who are you going to call? If you need a high society pick taken, you're going to call everyone's favorite cutting edge photog, Tony Jones. And it's on. They meet again. This time is decidedly different. He is bohemian and challenges her and kind of puts down girls because all of his mom issues and no one's ever talked to Margaret like this before. And she's like, Oh sweet Lord, he's the sexiest man I've ever seen. And apparently the sexual chemistry between these two is off the charts. Her Margaret's love, adoration and fondness for sex is legendary. We already know he loves all the sex. And these two bunnies are bacon biscuits in all of the heat. He has all these fuck pads all over town. One in Chelsea, one in Soho. And like she's walking in like, oh, my God, the palace would never approve. And I am 100% in. (laughs) I have found my rebellion. (laughs) This is it. I mean, she's rebel princess, right? Mm -hmm. And she's wicked. And this is living a life that just is intrigue. And and super modern. Mm. uh, So modern. But she doesn't know about Tony's secret life. Mm. She doesn't know he has girlfriends and boyfriends. And, you know, the fuck pads are not just for her. Okay. And does he, are these technically like studios for his work? Sure. Okay. Uh, Tony's living with his lover, a man, still seeing like five or six girl honeys while he's fucking Margaret, too. But that's not all. He has 
an ex-girlfriend of his, the original Camilla, hmm. who he dated ages ago, and they're still very good friends. And this is decidedly not not the Camilla, Camilla Parker, Parker Bowles. Bowles. Okay, no, completely the the original Camilla. Mm-hmm. He dated her ages ago, and they're still friends. And she's married his best mate, Jeremy Fry, and isn't it charming? And Tony goes over all the time. Their house on the weekends to sharing some friendly, awesome menage a trois weekends with a lot of liquor and no boundaries. And, oh, yeah, did I mention the pictures? <laughs> so life's great. Rolling along. Everyone is getting it while they can. And everyone would have been totes fine with how things were going. Ah, but rebound is an ugly thing. And sometimes you just don't know when it's going to catch up with you. Hmm. So Peter Townsend. Okay. Remember him? Ex-boyfriend. Sends a letter to Margaret that he is going to get remarried. Hmm. And he wants her to know. Like, he is being a straight up, this is nothing more than... He's just being respectful. Respectful. I want you to know about this before the rest of the world hears about it. And he still really does hold her in very high regard. He is protocol. He is protocol prince. That Mm -hmm. would have been a happier marriage. And Margaret's like, ah... Guess I need to get married before he does. That's her reaction. No, it's not a good, it's not a good idea. You're getting married. No. Let me get married faster. And uh, I guess fantastic so sex is petty, something to jealous. base a relationship on. And Tony's like, sure, let's do the damn thing. You want revenge? We have lit sex. Oh my and God. wouldn't my mother really love me oh, then? There you go. Well, everybody's happy, aren't they? <laughs> so both of them are going to head into this marriage for all the wrong reasons. Yep. But lest you think I have forgotten my roots of astrology, <laughs> let's talk about a Leo and a Pisces for a second. Fire and water. Mm. Water is going to douse fire. Fire is going to boil water. Steam. Steam. It is incredible how two signs that represent love can be so wrong for each other. The Leo will seem like a brute caring selfishly about their own needs and care- incapable of forming an intimate relationship with anyone, let alone a Pisces. The main problem of this relationship is the fact that the sign of Leo is a sign of the fall of Pisces ruler Neptune. Okay, so there's your little woo. And in a practical sense, this means Leo will burst the bubble of Pisces, endanger their sensitivity, idealism, and go against their beliefs. This will ruin the romance between them and make it impossible for them to find any magic while they are together. Pisces men and Leah women often build a relationship built on intrigue. So I see it. Mm -hmm. It's not uncommon for the Pisces man to be absolutely sucked in by the charm and the grace of Leah woman. She may be attracted to his compassion and the peaceful anchor that she's going to think he becomes. Both signs, the fish and the Linus, are passionate, compassionate, and loyal They lead to powerful bonds that are hard to break until one side truly gets fed up. While it may seem like an endearing quality, it assuredly means breakups will be nasty as neither is inclined to end it before rock bottom, anger, or pain. There's a little hint for you for how this is going to go. All right. Gotcha. Okay. (laughs) Tony tells his girlfriends, he tells his boyfriends about his new exciting engagement. Yep. The row crew master takes himself into the Thames and drowns himself. He's so devastated at the what? news. What? one of his boyfriends. Like all kinds Kills of... Kills himself? Yeah. All kinds of relationships over London are getting tanked for Oh this. my God. Even her friends are like, Margaret, do you know what you're doing? 
he is a bohemian sex god. He is not going to be a normal husband. He's not going to be home for dinner. He is not the protocol right. guy. He's not your protocol droid. That you are. Yeah. This is not the protocol droid you're looking for. And Margaret's like, of course, I can cope with any of it. He's the one that I want. <laughs> so Tony tells his family of the blessed engagement news, and they're stunned. Sure, yeah. Tug- and Tugboat Annie's like, wait a minute, you're going to be a royal? Tugboat Annie was a little uh, little uh-huh. stunted. Nobody's saying anything. He's like, I thought you all would be pleased. Mom does come around to be totally pleased. Oh, like, I'm sure. This is the fulfillment of her wildest social climbing dreams. Right, right. He is showered with her approval, love, and attention pretty much for the first time ever. The palace, on the other hand, is freaking the fuck out. I can imagine. Boy Jones, as he is known <laughs> in the palace, has a classified file. They know the kind of wild life that he lives. Yep. And uh, they also know scandal is not far off. Yeah. They try to temper it. But poor Margaret, 29, lonely. Doesn't she need a prince? And all of England is celebrating that... The princess, the lonely spinster princess has found her true love. Spinster princess. That is such a... T- oh, my God. I'm. S- it's a bad idea. Vaccinate your kids, and I'm so glad we don't live in that time period. But the wedding is on. It does not happen before Peter Townsend gets married, but it does happen. It is the first televised royal wedding, May 6th, 1960, okay. at Westminster Palace. Wow. Mm-hmm. So this really, this is Margaret's smack, a lot of trendsetters. So this is like smack dab in the middle of yep. of all of the events. And yeah, okay, cool. We, these are good stories. They these really, are good stories. They, they sit together nicely. I got a plan with my secret yeah, index card of yarn. Spreadsheet of yours. Is- <laughs> the wedding is a celebration. It's a six-week honeymoon on the Britannia, no. celebrated with 350 no. crew members. No. And married life begins. They need to burn that boat. Tony is playing it well for a while. He walks the proper amount of steps behind her. He plays the proper protocol game. Tony's always been like super curious. He's in. He's a yes and kind of guy. And now he is living like a stranger in a strange land. He is intrigued. He's fascinated in hell. Their sexual chemistry is off the charts, which is my nice way of saying I think they both of them like to do a lot of dirty things. <laughs> so they got some kinks. They have some kinks. They are electric. They change the face of how how royal couples are looked upon. They touch. They are super tactile with each other. Like nobody's ever seen anything like Tony and Margaret. They have a child about a year and a half after the wedding, a son. And now the palace is like, all right, I guess he's sticking around. I guess we need to give Tony a title. So he is. Oh, so they had not. He did Mm -hmm. not become something when he married a princess. Nope, not until they had a son. Okay. At that time, he has bestowed the totally made-up title of Earl of Snowden. Another child follows. This time, a girl. And by all accounts, just like your perfuma parents, Tony is a terrific dad. He is always making the kids interested in what he's doing. So, like, whatever, he's cooking. Yep, we're going to measure this. And, sure, like, you know, sure. I don't know if that's a real life example or not, but he's always mm. kind of driving like, that curiosity in them. Involving them. And, yeah. Like, you know, this marriage is not going to be saved, but it's not on account of his lousy parenting. 
by all accounts, he's a pretty good dad. Good anyway. Tony decides to renovate a home, redesign, renovate a home at Kensington Palace for them. He's super detail-focused. And remember, he's learned from his super Mm -hmm. best, awesome gay uncle, Ollie. And even the challenge of this home is not enough. By 1962, the house is built, and he's kind of losing interest in the scene and decides to get a job, a J-O-B, at the Sunday Times as their new photographer. I didn't realize that was an option for royals. Except the military. Okay. Okay. Wow. So so modern. I mean. Our couple is spending the early 1960s in this domesticated bliss with all kinds of entree. He is swinging and way more famous than the people he's taking pictures of. And she's, well, Princess Margaret. Uh, Right. They're the first royals to water ski. (laughs) They hang out with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. The Beatles. Peter Sellers. Wow. All the hip people. There are lots of loose artistic types at these kind of parties. Sure, sure. And I'm going to give you a little drop on trashy tidbits this week on Patreon. I'm going to be covering all the ways that Margaret is the most annoying AF royal. <laughs> I'll give a little dish here. She's cool with all this loose, arty informality because there's never any drugs or alcohol around to make people even oh, looser. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. But when they go over the line of what she deems is too far, her blue eyes get icy. She, like, turns into a white walker. That's how people describe Like, they don't say white walker, but, but... like, her blue eyes get icy and she will shut you down. So even though Margaret has found the happiness and the life she wants to live as her little rebellious royal, she still has zero problem pulling rank. Okay. Tony is a man living a good time. But he sees this kind of nonsense that she pulls, and God, he hates it. Right. I'm he sure is, it's embarrassing for oh him because he's been a party boy for a long time now. And he just wants to, don't don't shut down the fucking party. Right. Don't, it's my wife that's shutting yeah, down like, the party. Stop pissing off my friends. Yeah. He's getting more frustrated and anxious as each day progresses. And now all the things that he originally found fascinating in sure, her, sure. he now finds annoying as fuck. Mm. And he wants to travel and go on all kinds of trips abroad. And Margaret's on her own more and more. And the more he begins to go away, the more insecure she becomes. She's convinced he's cheating, which Which he totally is. is. They begin to fight in public. It's the land of a thousand excuses and things are going downhill and hostility is building by the day. So remember what I said about a Leo Pisces. Like, they're not going to end it until it is the bitter, bitter end. And now we're we're going to talk about approaching the, the bitter, 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 bitter end. end. Yeah. Okay. They head on holiday mm-hmm. to a Caribbean island, 1965, okay. to Mustique, where Princess Margaret and Tony sort of become the talk of the town. Because he's out on the roof. And his friends are called. And they're like, dude, don't jump. We can talk this through. Let us help you. And they go out to the roof and he's like, jump hell. This is the only place I can get away from that bloody woman. Oh, Jesus. So it's going well. Married five years, bad all over. Yeah. But still super hot sex. Uh. The relationship is crumbling. She is seeking emotional intimacy through all these appeals. Like, let's get together and make some sort of meaningful connection. And... This is not his jam. 
and they are never really able to settle into like a cozy intimacy or affection with each other. Hot sex, cold heart, icy, icy hearts. Okay. She's feeling alone and neglected. His affairs are front and center. And she says she never like really wanted an open marriage. But as a lady who really, really enjoys sex, needs to get some and what's good for the goose and gander and all that. So I guess we're doing this. We're looking at the disappearing nature of the people they have been. And they have begun to change into the worst kind of people. So unkind and no apologies. Hmm. Tony is all like, what? You're doing this to me? You're cheating on... It's fine for him to cheat on her, oh, sure. but now no, she's clearly just... crossed the line. Of course. Which I think takes a lot of nerve and yeah. makes Tony retreat a little bit more inward. He begins starting to make documentaries. Many specifically in a way where he becomes a champion for the disabled. Mm. Like his polio is stuck with him and he oh, right. wants to do some good. Oh, so he's crap to her, but Very cool. he's really working on continuing his rep in a positive promo mm-hmm. kind of way. Sure. Tony this time also decides that he is sick and fucking tired of Kensington Palace. <laughs> and he decides to go and do up his old family's home in Sussex called Old House. It's family property. But he does it secretly. Oh. Mags is not a part of it. Seriously. Mm-hmm. Goes like every weekend and refinishes wood. And- Just like, hey, mm-hmm. I've going fishing and then instead goes and builds his I yeah okay he weird goes and restores his family home does up the house gets friendly with the neighbors and their 14 year old daughter Jackie uh-oh mm-hmm. uh, not friendly yet in that way but okay. rest but assured it's coming. okay dear listener uh by the time they do get friendly he's wanted to be friendly with her since she was about 14 Ick. So. okay I'm learning so much about men (laughs) from this podcast. Everybody knows what's up. The palace, the staff, like everybody knows what's happening. And one night, Margaret, drunk, take me to old house. And the chauffeur is like, awkward turtle, but okay, let's go. And he's driving thinking, "What what do I do? What do I do? And the only thing he can think of to do as he's pulling in the drive is just flash the fuck out right. of those lights, right. you know? And sure enough, Tony meets him at the door. Darling, how lovely to see you. And says to the chauffeur, hey, the Aston Martin needs filling up. And the chauffeur knows the car does not need filling up at all because he'd just done whatever he'd done to the car. But the chauffeur, yes, sir, and drives the car away and stops a little way later. And now 16-year-old Jackie pops out Ooh. of the trunk. Oh, man. Tony's 39. So nothing creepy at all. Nothing creepy at all. Hmm. But Tony has standing with the palace. He is super discreet. Here's another good life lesson, y'all. If you can't be good, at least be discreet about it. He is truly fond of the queen and the queen mother. Because his mom would kill him if he wasn't. But he really does appear to have a genuine fondness for them. And because of that... He keeps everything really, really under wraps. The funny thing to me here, again, Maggie is fucking annoying AF. And it seems like the royal family really likes him way more than they like her. Any problems they are having in the marriage, the palace and the family blame on her, not him. Interesting. Interesting. So where you talked about in Profumo, 
This is my little side tangent here and really kind of where I think they're connected. I think that Tony Jones brought the royal family into the modern age. I think there's a case to be made for that. Mm -hmm. His influence really does change the narrative of the royal family then and what's to come. Like they become much more accessible. First televised wedding. Like it's a very, they they touch each other. Like it's a very, he has a J-O-B. It's a very different sort of looking marriage. I think it kind of brings that into modern times for the royals. The queen loves him. And his distinctive style, enough to ask Tony to design the investiture of Charles in 1969. Hmm. And Tony does a bang-up job, right? He's he's art man from his yeah. teenage years. Yeah. He's married to Margaret. Like, he's got this. And his brilliant modern take on pageantry goes amazingly. And his relationship with Jackie is widely known, but everybody's denying it. And then... Teenager's going to teenage. Jackie confesses. Mm. And the press wants to run a story. Oh, I bet they do. And her parents, like, bring down the hammer. And Tony feels his life is closing in and heads into the state of despair that he decides to take out on Princess Margaret. She is convinced that each morning where he knows that she has an engagement for that night, he will pick and start fights and fight all day with her. So she'll go to that engagement with bloodshot eyes and visibly upset now the super fun thing that he does which is really bad he leaves little lists why i hate your fucking guts oh my god he leaves lists for her and sticks them in and like replaces her bookmarks in the book she's reading so she'll oh that is so evil 10 things i hate about you oh my god okay now, remember, like, he has an absent mother who was reigned by pretense. He finds it very, he'll fuck girls, but he finds it difficult to trust women and likes nothing more than to test boundaries. So he's looking for her breaking point. Oh, uh, this is terrible. Margaret gets the brunt of this for a while until about 1972 when Tony finds a new gal, a colleague and uh, co-worker. Down at the paper, Lucy Lindsay Hogg. She conveniently enough lives right around the corner from Kensington. And here's your hint. She's going to become his next wife. <laughs> With the new affair and all the helpful little lists, yeah. Margaret's really figuring out the yeah. writing on the wall. Mm-hmm. And decides in 1973 as retaliation. Rebound. Dangerous thing. To find comfort in the arms of a dude named Roddy Llewellyn, 17 years her junior. Oh, God. She's 43. He's 26. Well. This is some good middle-aged straight-up cougar stuff right yeah. here, y'all. And Tony is like, this guy needs to. Revenge cougar. Revenge cougar is right. This guy needs to stay out of my face. And she's like, fuck off, fucker. And proceeds to take Roddy down to her private home. On the only land she's ever owned in her own name on Mustique. All of the Mustique nefariousness, the land, how she got it, who she fucked on it, the home there, its history, and all the other famous people on the island will feature heavily in this week's Trashy Tidbits on Patreon. Okay. But time factor. So Princess Cougar scratching her itch. Having a marvelous time with her younger lover in her private home where certainly no one is watching... Or but alas, yeah. have you met the British press? 
And they are watching with some new groovy telephoto technology mm. equipment. And they have pictures. And they publish them front oh, page photos boy, and yeah. all. Yeah. And yeah. Tony is like, fucking finally. Oh, really? Collect $200 and get the fuck out of this marriage jail. But oh, this desert life, this high life here at the dying end of the day. He wasn't made for the scene, but he got made in the scene. And baby, it's just his way. Now he can claim he's the injured party. Right. Okay. Right? Yeah. Which, I mean, front page. I but mean, he's just he... been, you know what? I can do what I want. I'm discreet. Yeah. I'm cool. Keep it an undercover. Yeah. He hasn't embarrassed the mm-hmm. royal family. Um, she has. <laughs> there you go. Oh, so, of course, God. I'm the grieving husband in this. Mm-hmm. The separation is announced between the couple of March of 1976. So the, they, they had a long marriage, though. That's 16 years. Total of 18 by the time they got divorced. Okay. Yeah. The public in the palace are freaking out. Remember, this has not happened in 450 right. years. Right. This divorce will damage Margaret for the rest of her life and cement her places, the bad one, the evil sister, forever. But she's royal, so she's not allowed to talk about it. She can't share her side. Yeah, write a tell-all or whatever. But Tony can. So he hightails it over to Australia and gives the best press conference in the history of pressers. (sighs) She says it was the best acting he ever did. He comes out, I'm the wrong husband, and people feel sorry for him. And he comes out of this nonsense smelling like a fucking rose. (sighs) Mags will continue to be vilified the divorce is finalized in 1978. For public's perception, she appears devastated because, you know, she's failed God and her sense of duty. Her relationship with Roddy fizzles out by 1980. She proceeds to fuck, drink, and smoke all the way through to the end of her death. But let's go back to Tony. Okay. He's still living it up. Taking photos. He creates the Snowden Award for Disabled Young People. He stays totally friendly with the royal family. They didn't divorce him. They never divorced Tony. This is very strange. He never discloses a damn word. Like, he is the daughter-in-law Elizabeth wishes that she had when her boys were coming to her. Well, her daughter, too, Princess Anne. Right. The only one out of her four kids that has stayed stayed married is Prince Edward. That's the 25%. The other three... Tony does marry Lucy and Princess Margaret is just the Maleficent of England. But you know, Tony, he's running his game and grifter's going to grift and player's going to play. Then it turns out Tony, it's revealed, has had a 20 year long year mistress. The end of Margaret Mm -hmm. from 1976 to 1996. And this is revealed when she kills herself on New Year's Eve of 1996. Whoa. He's just kind of French about it. These things happen. Lucy stays with Tony. There is another affair with a girl 30 years his junior. She gets pregnant. Oh, no. His son is born in April of 1998. At this point, Lucy, in our divorce count, has had enough. Fair. <laughs> they divorce in 2000. Tony does not remarry. Okay. So Margaret gets a little bit of redemption with mm-hmm. all of this scandal. Uh, but she does proceed to fuck, smoke, drink her way through all the continents, albeit maybe a little bit more discreetly than before. But she's Mags, and she doesn't really give a fuck. So 
Oh, also this week, Trashy Tidbits will include her affair with a dude affectionately named Mr. Six Pints, and you're going to want to know why. Uh, good, solid drinker? No. Okay. But wait, that's not all. Remember the free-loving menage a trois thing with yeah. the original Camilla and Greg uh-huh. Fry in the late 50s when he's dating Margaret? Yeah. Turns out, Camilla had a baby three weeks after Tony and Mags got married, and DNA proves that that is Tony's child as well. How many little Snowdens are out there? Um, two, four okay. that, I know that we know of. <laughs> <sighs> Margaret dies not knowing this little last bit. She passes away in 2002. Tony lives until the ripe age of 87. Wow. Dying in 2017. Hmm. I'm going to ask you your trash cans in a second, but I'm just going to continue on with the narrative because we're wrapped and I'm mad about it. In this story, I don't know, no heroes, no villains, I guess, but one plus one equals nothing at all. I'm giving them five trash cans Mm -hmm. for sure. She is a smart, wasted away princess, wasting away and wasted away. And all the fucking like so many men. And by the time of her divorce and afterward, the bitter truth about her becomes public knowledge. She lives for her own pleasure. She is devoid of any kind of common touch. And the world is just there to fulfill her whims. And hey, she married a bisexual dude who felt the exact same way that the world was there to fulfill his whims. But he didn't have a fancy tiara or the inherited wealth. So the absolute twinning here, to me, makes this the worst kind of couple. And what a disaster. But let me give you two more bits about old Mags and why she's the shittiest shitbag ever. (laughs) No, I'm mad about this. Princess Margaret has the nerve after her whole rebel princess first divorce 45 years scandal to admonish not one, but both Diana and Fergie. Are you ready? She tells Fergie that she is ashamed of her. She admonishes her for all of the shame that Fergie has brought to the royal family. And don't you have any self-respect? Sarah got caught doing the exact, the exact same, same thing, thing yeah, I was that Margaret say, did. Was, I learned it by watching She was on a you. beach with a fella who was sucking on her toes. Okay, this next one's worse. Margaret is so furious with Diana after her 1995 Panorama interview. She describes Diana as a wretched girl wretched she says poor lilibet queen elizabeth and charles have done everything they can to get rid of that wretched girl and she just won't go jeez diana's death two years later didn't soften anything princess margaret called the late princess and the public's grief over her death quote unquote hysterical and says this she said the hysteria was rather like diana herself it was if when she died, she got everyone to be as hysterical as she was. Holy shit. That is a heartless person right there. This is the trashiest divorce I've ever covered. I need a drink and a smoke <sighs> and a staff to boss. Inman, I need a staff to boss around. <laughs> Sorry. I got on a roll there. Five trash cans, man. This is a this is a super trashy divorce. Interesting lives, though. There's your trashy um, divorce of Princess Margaret. And Anthony Armstrong Jones, the Earl of Snowden. Hmm. 
Would you agree with my? I didn't even give you a chance to comment I, on no, my trash. I, you, I you got a five on that. Completely agree. Okay. Um, and I, I think Profumo has to get a five too because like old men and teenage girls and just the elites with their country homes bringing basically bringing British prostitutes. House parties, y'all. Don't do it. It's. <laughs> I mean, it must must be fun if that's your circle i guess but we need to start a 10 things i've learned from trashy divorces list with all of our fun life lessons can you imagine leaving why i hate you notes like here's your here's your grocery list i hate you because no that's ridiculous the worst you move out you get divorced like if you get to that point (laughs) what are you even doing all right mate I think we've outdone Trashy for ourselves this week. Werewolves of London, y'all. That was it. That was it. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Seriously, thank you for listening. We just can't believe how widespread this thing has gotten. So it's Y'all really are awesome. Cool. Yeah. Y'all are amazing. Thanks for tuning in. We will be back next week. And again, Patreon this week is going to be lit Consider joining us over there if you want all the extra hot takes and all the extra bonus series and content we're doing over there. Yeah. Anyway, thanks, everybody. Y'all are the best. Have a fantastic week. And keep it trashy. You got it. As always. Bye. Keep it corgi. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. And definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy y'all.